Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's and what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound... Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Albert Berla began his extensive career with the pharmaceutical company Pfizer as a doctor of veterinary medicine and technical director of the animal health division in Greece. Dr. Berla began moving up in the ranks and took helm as Pfizer's CEO. Under Dr. Berla's leadership, Pfizer was tasked with developing a vaccine to fight against COVID-19 in 2020. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Dr. Albert Berla recalls his career in moving up in the ranks with Pfizer, the vaccine rollout, and working with other world leaders, and what he thinks about the disparity in healthcare access. Albert, how are you? I'm very good, man. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. Thank you for joining me. Very nice to see you as well. Albert, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in, uh, in Greece, uh, in a city called Thessaloniki, the second largest city of Greece. Um, and, and you lived there through college and all the way into adulthood, yes? Or, or, or did you leave there as a young boy? No, no, no. I lived there all the way to finishing my, my PhD. And uh, actually, I had never planned to leave the city. I, th- I was uh, having the feeling, as most of my co-citizens, that this is the center of the world. There is nothing to compare. Everything else is uh, BS, whatever is in Salonik is gold. <laughs> and uh, actually, the worst of all moves uh, were considered from someone from the Salonik to go to Athens, which was the, the capital, and it is the capital of Greece. But um, I life brought it that I had to, to to move because Pfizer gave me a job in Athens, and they made me an offer I couldn't resist. So I decided to go, uh, and thinking that uh, I'm going uh, to prison. But uh, <laughs> it happened that were first of all the best three years of my life, living in Athens, and that was the first of eight relocations that I did in this uh, company. So instead of uh, living forever in uh, Greece, I went to the other extreme. Wait, now, why were the three years in Athens the best of your life? What, what was special about those years? I was young. I was bachelor. I was making more I could spend. What else do you need to be happy? 
<laughs> right? It was easy. It was easy. So was it was it was it hard to convince you to come to the to the states, or by the time you had enjoyed Athens, you were ready to uh, to go overseas as well? No, no. By the time I was really on the peak of enjoying uh, Athens, they gave me a, a, a job in Europe in Brussels, where the European Union is. Again, with Pfizer, we had some headquarters there. So I moved to Brussels, and that was the second relocation. And then the third was in Poland, and so on. So the U.S., in fact, was the fifth relocation. And that happened only in 2001. Huh. And do you think because you had spent so many times in different markets, that in any way gave you a competitive advantage when it came ultimately to the CEO um, succession opportunity? Or do you think it was just the path you took and you just as easily could have done it being based in the States or being based in one place? I think that, uh, I don't know if it gave me competitive advantage, but definitely uh, helped shape who I am. Uh, the fact that I was exposed to so many cultures, uh, living in so many countries and cities, uh, made me understand that there is never a center of the world, that the world is uh, full of connectivity, and uh, that. Uh, the same thing can be accepted or not in different cultures. And uh, you can say the same thing in different ways and still mean it and still be acceptable in different cultures. So that gave me this cultural sensitivity, but I think it helped me a lot to be who I am. Now, you were a veterinarian by training, yes? I am. So how does a veterinarian become CEO of one of the biggest companies in the world? How did that happen? I don't know. It's not forbidden for veterinarians to be CEOs last time I checked, <laughs> but uh, it's an uh, unconventional uh, path. I agree. The connection is that um, I was recruited in Pfizer in the animal health division of Pfizer. We had a very large animal health business, which were medicines for, for animals. And uh, as a veterinarian, I was recruited so that I can contribute to this business. And I stayed many years of my career uh, in the animal health uh, business before I moved to the biopharmaceutical business that is medicines for humans, of course. Did, did that in any way, um, Albert, make you a more creative scientist in the end? Like I'm thinking about this very short window in which you and your team developed the vaccine. And I'm wondering if the fact that you worked with different species and, and maybe in different spaces maybe allowed you to think uh, more broadly about how you may get from point A to point B? Or am I overreading that? Oh, no, you don't. I think it helped a lot. Uh, it helped because uh, coming from a very different world, uh, the animal health world was a world of uh, limited resources. Always the human health division was the division that all the resources were going. So we learned to do things uh, the smart way because we didn't have much uh, opportunity to do it uh, the lucrative way. Uh, but also that comes, uh, you know, in Greece, uh, uh, we were always, particularly in the past, Greece was quite poor country in Europe and uh, and a small country. And uh, over there also, we learned to do things uh, the, the smart way and trying to find solutions, do a lot with less. So then when suddenly I came to the human health, uh, from one hand, I was impressed with the resources that we had, but also from the other hand, I could see things that the others wouldn't because they were they grew up in this environment. So that helped me have a different perspective. And clearly, I, I, I used this more um, quick 
spirit, I think, came from, uh, from that world, yes. You, you know that in any big organization, usually there are several people who get to the finals of who will be the next CEO and who will succeed. And I had a wonderful conversation with Bob Iger of Disney about how he won that job. He says that even though he was number two in this company and had been there for many decades, that he wasn't the favorite, in part because he had been there so long and people thought they needed change and they didn't see him as a change agent originally. Were you a favorite to succeed, Ian Reid, as, as the CEO at, at Pfizer, um, or were you kind of an outside candidate who, who ultimately succeeded maybe against the odds a little bit? Look, from what I learned after, <laughs> uh, there were uh, several candidates that the board has examined. I knew the internal candidates, was very clear who we are. And uh, but I know that also they they looked at external candidates. So I don't know if I was the favor uh, or not. I think they were very open minded to all the candidates, and it was a very long process. Uh, the process took almost two years that we knew that we were candidate to success to succeed Ian, and we were uh, doing interviews and presentations, and uh, we had dinners and. Uh, and breakfast with all board members multiple times so that they can see what is our vision, where we want to take it. And eventually they had uh, to make a decision who, who to select, and then they selected. So I don't think there was any favor. They were very open-minded. But clearly, the vision that I was, uh, that I was uh, trying to, to present to the world, to the, to the board, played a role. And that was a vision that uh, I want to build on the successes and the strong foundation that I'm finding from, or that I will find from here, and change. So it was uh, an, uh, a change based on strength rather than because we felt we are, we are doing bad and we need to change. So fast forward me to today, because you had kind of a first year as CEO, maybe a first year plus where you were acquiring companies and there was a lot that was going on. And then all of a sudden pandemic comes and You've got a very different job. You've got a very different responsibility in the world. When you look back 20 years from now, 30 years from now, what do you think will be the two or three biggest takeaways you'll have from the last year? And I realize we're still not done and we're still in the middle of it in a, in a very meaningful way. But what do, what do you look back on and how do you see the key takeaways, the key lessons of the last year? For me, and I think at large for Pfizer, I think the, the fundamental big lesson is that uh, uh, don't think that something is impossible. Someone will come and do it. So try to think that everything is possible and find solutions. And when we started with this adventure in 2020 about the COVID vaccine, we felt it's impossible to do it at that level of efficacy, at that level of safety in this period of time. It was clearly considered impossible with all logical means. But because we we came from the end and tried to re-engineer back, and the end was... If we don't have a vaccine in October, based on the past experience, and the past experience for me was the Spanish flu back 100 years ago, uh, that came uh, as a second wave in, uh, in fall, and that was the most, uh, the wave that killed most of the people. That was the most devastating wave. So I knew that. And um, uh, we started that if we don't have something, the world will have to, 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 to endure dramatic losses. It's not only about the economy, the human lives that will be lost will be uh, tremendous. And uh, 
we re-engineer back, so that's not an option, we said. We need to have something. And then we work back our way to see what this will be so that we can eventually bring a vaccine. So that's for me the key takeaway, that there is nothing, uh, don't think that you know what is possible and impossible. Always test your limit. Um, Albert, where are you? Where are you based? I am, uh, right now, I mean, I, we have a small office in uh, Connecticut, uh, in Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm based in New York, so I, I came here. It's very close to my home. Interesting. And have you, have you stayed largely in that area for most of the last year, or by virtue of your work, have you had to travel the globe? No, no, no. I stayed uh, at large <laughs> uh, in uh, working from home uh, or from this uh, office here in Connecticut, but largely from home which is uh, Scarsdale, New York, so I'm living in, in uh, Westchester. So, so, Albert, what was the first time you heard about COVID-19? Like, literally, how did you hear? Did someone call you? Was it an email? Was it an urgent meeting? When was the first time you heard about it? Oh, I think it was back in December or something in China and from the news. Nothing was, uh, let's say, it was not in my radar screen and something that... Uh, Will whether much we didn't have medicines for that, we didn't know that it is a, a disease that will take uh, significant uh, dimensions. Uh, and then uh, when it started becoming an issue in China, uh, then I was alerted because we do have uh, significant operations in China. We have thousands of people working for us in China, uh, in Pfizer China. And uh, then I started uh, worried about the operations, the safety of the people, and how we do it. So. We formed a team, and I put a senior leader, uh, that will coordinate our response uh, to China for China. And so what to do with the offices, if we close, if we work from home, if we work digitally, this type of, uh, of events. And uh, all the way to the new year of, of 20, January and beginning of February, we were considering that uh, at large uh, a Chinese issue with a little bit of concerns end of January, but maybe that could go out of China. But that was it. And then when was the moment where you the, the alarm bell rang and you realized that this was morphing or it was transitioning into a global pandemic that you would have to be involved in in a very different way? You know, if you remember the events of, that, uh, of those weeks, they, they really ramped up very, very quickly. But... Um, uh, every day news were coming, but uh, I remember that um, I had uh, um, um, quite a bit of a concern in a February board meeting that we had because I asked uh, our people to, to present how the situation is with, with COVID, but we were far away of believing that number one will be a pandemic or that uh, we could play a significant role at that time. I had to travel at the end of February to go to my home country where I was a speaker in an economic forum, the Delphi Economic Forum, which is a forum that uh, is very prestigious in Greece and, and always happens. There was never a year that didn't happen. And uh, three days, I arrived three, four days earlier so I can see my, my sister, my relatives, my friends. And then uh, three days before, I received an email that uh, the Congress is canceled because uh, the Greeks, were taking very were among the first that took that very serious. So they canceled this. So I said, if this uh, Congress is, uh, is this forum is canceled in Greece, it was a, a really a shock for me. So my, my God, that never happened. It's like if the Olympics would not happen, as eventually they didn't. So 
I I started thinking about it, but then the news started coming hour after hour. So on my way back uh, to the United States, uh, I took a, in a piece of paper, I wrote uh, the first things that I want to ask my team to do when uh, I land the next day. And um, I wrote three things. One, how to make sure that everybody is safe. 90,000 people who have responsibility. Second, from what I'm hearing in China, they were building hospitals because they didn't have enough capacity in the cities and they were building hospitals for 10,000 people in uh, in few weeks. So I, I said, if hospitals will be overcrowded, they will need medicines and we are the largest provider of hospital medicines in general and uh, injectables particularly. So I said, how the hell are we going to maintain if things go south, supply to the hospitals? Because that could become a vicious cycle, right? So that they don't have hospital supply, then more COVID is uh, happening, then as a result, we can go and produce, and then as a result, they have even less COVID-19. And then the third was, let's see if we have something to work with in uh, antivirals and maybe vaccines. And first, in my mind, was antiviral in that strip. So I went back and I gave this, uh, let's say, three uh, issues with my team. And then we said, you do this, you do that, you do that. And then we start, that was it. This is when we kicked uh, off the major uh, response from Pfizer to this COVID. And did you get a call? I had Dr. Fauci on with me a couple weeks ago, and he also was kind of walking me through his mindset in this window as well. Did you hear from Dr. Fauci? Did you hear from Bill Gates, who also joined us on the show uh, in the last month? And he was also talking about his mindset in this window. Were you talking to either of them or to others? Who was in your, in your phone set? Who are you going back and forth with outside of Pfizer? I spoke to both of them, but not during the period of uh, making the decision what we are going into a vaccine. Uh, once the decision was made, what well, was a few weeks later, uh, this is the, the first one that I spoke with Bill, actually, because he has a high interest uh, in vaccines, particularly for the for the developing countries. Actually, he's one of the few that uh, can still stand and represent their interest. And um, we were discussing at that time how we can uh, bring um, different level of collaboration. So, for example, one can use the laboratories of the other. And if Pfizer has a, an essay uh, that we know how to do it, but another company wants to run some samples, we can do that for them. These were the first discussions that we had with Bill um, and then with Tony a little bit later. Interesting. And so what ended up allowing the impossible to happen? Because, uh, you know, for me, it almost reminds me a little bit of the moon landing. You know, uh, John F. Kennedy and others saying what seemed impossible at the time at the start of the 60s, that we were going to have a person, you know, land on the moon by the end of the decade. And lo and behold, to the surprise, at least of many Americans, it happened. Um, but but similarly with the vaccine within a year, a high quality, high efficacy high safety vaccine, what ended up making the difference? And when was the moment that you realized uh, that this actually could happen, that you could deliver something viable and effective in the fall? I realized that it would happen only after it happened. But um, the the essence of all this 
very big, very risky, very aggressive, very ambitious projects. It is that you need to believe on it. If uh, you, you let the doubt uh, occupy your, uh, your brain cells, uh, then will replicate faster than the virus, the doubt. And uh, you will find zillion reasons uh, why it cannot be done. You need to have constantly the belief that it can be done. It's, there is a way. We just need to find it. I think this is the fundamental. And the most important is not only for you to believe it. Uh, it is to convince everyone in this team that this can be done. And I think, frankly, that was the most important of all. Now, zillion things needed to fall in place so that we would be able to come to that conclusion. The stars needed to be aligned. And we did several things. We, I tried to liberate scientists from the internal bureaucracy. So there are a lot of, uh, there's a chain of command how a science can come all the way to me, right? Needs to speak to the lieutenant and the colonel and the, all the way to come to me. Uh, we flattened that. We, we instituted uh, every twice a week a meeting that everybody was there, multiple levels of management, all. And it was not all the scientists and the engineers, for example, to build the manufacturing. So everything was discussed real time and the decision will be taken on the spot rather than have to go to a committee, another committee, another committee that will approve to bring it to me. I try to protect them from, uh, from the bureaucracy of, the, of external. Uh, so I didn't take the money from the government because when you take the money, then they had to be in committees with Operation War Speed at that time, right? Instead of being dead. And we, we didn't want to, that, they just wanted to move. I, I made money not an issue to them. I, I knew that's going to be an expensive proposition. We costed that it will be around $2 billion. If we do that, I knew it's very highly the risk, but I knew that the world is expecting us to that. I counted that the reputation gains that we'll have by investing in this area are going to be very high, even if we fail to produce a, a vaccine. And I told to my board, look, it's going to be very painful if we, lose the, if we don't make a vaccine, we'll lose the money, but it will not take us down. So we will continue to exist, right? We have the ability to, to absorb it. Uh, so that helped a lot because uh, decisions of that would cost, let's say, hundreds of millions could, could be made like that. Uh, so there are a lot of things that happen. But as I said, the fundamental is that there was a belief in all people that it can be done. Failure is not an option. It can be done. There is a way. Just we need to find it. And, and, and where did that mindset come from? Was this something that you had and you had, had, had exemplified this in other situations? So this was just yet another one? Was this the result of a set of conversations that you had with mentors or your board or others at the outset that you recognized uh, that that level of confidence and clarity was going to be important? Or was this something that just developed real time as you kind of met the moment? How did this how did that mindset happen there? Because you and I both know that that's not always what happens under pressure, right? That's that when these kinds of difficult situations, this is not always the approach and the result. Yeah, it, very clearly, it is my mindset. I operate like that. Uh, it wouldn't be enough, though. Uh, I needed to convince everyone. And I wouldn't be able to convince everyone if no one else was like that. So in this team, there were several people that were like me. Yes, we can find a way. Yes, we can find a way. So the fact that I was 
so much insisting on that, gave them the license to start preaching as well. Yes, you can, yes, you can, and start preaching even to their bosses, because it could happen that uh, the person underneath was the one who was the believer and the boss was the most conservative. So when you have this, because you are getting this license to, to dare, to try, basically, uh, the whole thing inspired people. And also, um, I wouldn't call it, it was an emotional blackmail, but there was an emotional challenge for all, because I was very clear and vocal. If we don't do it, we're ready for a lot of people that you know will die in October, in November, right? This is what history is telling us. And if not us, then who? So they knew that uh, failure is not an option. So they were really trying. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Albert, how have you changed as a leader as a result or as a person? Because I've seen you now across a variety of conversations and you've seemed relatively steady, but maybe you're like the duck or the swan where you're 
cool on the surface and maybe a little uh, paddling furiously underneath. But but have you have you changed yourself much as a person or as a leader as a result of this experience? Look, I think every year of my 27 years with Pfizer, I change at the end of the year and I'm different leader than I was before. Maybe as individual contributor or as a manager or a senior leader, uh, I learn. And uh, the more challenging the year it is, the more I learn. And uh, the year that uh, I will feel that at the end I'm the same like in the beginning, I think will be the year that I will decide to go. Uh, so uh, I wouldn't say that uh, it's something different, but certainly the intensity of what I had to go through uh, had a much more severe impact on me than uh, other years. Albert, what was your experience like dealing with former President Trump? Because obviously he had a lot of pressure on him as the president, right? And he was obviously looking not only towards uh, his government scientists, but obviously also uh, interacting with the private sector and Operation Warp Speed and all that. What was your experience like with him? Well, I, I guess you're speaking in the context of the vaccine, what was the experience? Because I had met the, the president, uh, President Trump, uh, in previous occasions, uh, as representative of the pharmaceutical industry, we were discussing healthcare reforms. I wanted to explain our position and this type of uh, of, uh, of uh, policy discussions with him. But um, clearly, uh, in the beginning, I don't think uh, the president was thinking that we are in the forefront. Uh, so he wouldn't call much uh, about the vaccine. And then uh, suddenly when uh, we, we were able to position ourselves that likely now, suddenly we are the first ones to... <laughs> To come out if there would be a success, then he started calling much more often, and um, he was asking uh, news. He was um, clear to me, but also publicly that he, he wants a vaccine and he wants one before the election. So in, in his mind, uh, it was very important for him, and he was calling to see how things are going. And how much pressure did you feel to get it done? Because you guys announced it effectively shortly after uh, the election. And so there was kind of a week there where it felt like you could, you might have maybe announced it sooner. You didn't. How much pressure did you feel in that particular window? No, the president was calling me and he was making very clear that he would like to see it sooner rather than later. But he never pressed me to do something that uh, would be inappropriate with the vaccine. And I'm sure he knew that uh, if he would, I wouldn't anyway. So, but he did it, never. Uh, he was asking, and then uh, the few times that he was telling me uh, that we need to do it fast, first he would, he would say, we need to do it quickly, people are dying, uh, and then also he would add, and of course, will help me also in the elections, but people is the important thing that uh, I will do. I, I was always very clear to him and uh, to also the campaign of uh, the current president, that we were trying to be very close to them, that no matter what, we will move with the speed of science. Some people wanted to move faster, some people wanted to move slower, because for them, elections was an important milestone. For me, it was a non-existing milestone. Uh, the pressure that really I was feeling, I wanted to do it as quickly. If I could do it uh, before a week earlier, or two weeks earlier, or three weeks earlier, I would. Uh, the important thing for me, it was the pressure of the billions of people that suddenly had invested their entire uh, hopes on us. And we had to, to deliver. And it came after the elections, and this is when we announced it. 
How do you feel about the rollout now? We're now several months into it. How do you assess it? How, how, have, how have you done? How have we done? And I say that knowing that there are multiple participants involved. Yeah. I think people were thinking that uh, in a whole vaccination campaign, the difficult thing would be to have a vaccine uh, soon enough. And the remaining will be a piece of cake. And uh, because it happened that the vaccines came against all odds and made the impossible possible, people really thought that uh, then to vaccinate millions of people all at once should be a very uh, trivial uh, task. But it wasn't. So I was not happy with the speed that uh, as all Americans and all citizens of the world could witness, not only the US, but the US and Europe and all the other countries uh, going very slow. But it happened not because everybody was incompetent, on the, it was because it's very complicated. Um, the slowly, slowly, things started getting a little bit better. Uh, particularly the US, I think the changes that the new administration implemented in some of the fundamental policies, I think helped a lot. And uh, they, uh, they are achieving now very, very fast results. Actually, the US now is doing better than Europe, clearly. Uh, before, uh, was doing worse than Europe. And um, there's only one country that uh, really has done extremely well, which is Israel. Uh, but because they have, let's say, this, um, uh, because of their situation, they know how to uh, execute in crisis. And uh, I think this is what helped. But right now, I think everybody is uh, getting better. Clearly, in the US, we have become much, much, much better. And I'm um, very, actually, I'm optimistic myself that uh, both the supply will continue coming very robust and that uh, the vaccination schedules uh, will meet the goals that the government has set, if not exceed them. And, and what about in China? What are you seeing in China where you both have operations, you have a lot going on there? Have you met with Leader Xi and have you had convers or, or have you spoken with Leader Xi about what is happening there and where COVID-19 and, and the response stands there? I didn't speak with Leader Xi about the coronavirus. And actually, I didn't speak to him the last one year since the crisis uh, happened. Because of our very strong presence, I, I had the opportunity to discuss with him previously uh, policy matters. And actually, it was at that time the conflict between U.S. and China under the Trump administration that was mostly in the discussions of every uh, a company that had operations in both uh, countries. But we didn't discuss that COVID, and I didn't travel to China uh, since the COVID uh, happened. And, and what about uh, Merkel, Chancellor Merkel in Germany, who's a scientist? Um, I assume you might have had different kinds of conversations with someone who comes from a science background herself than maybe you would with world leaders who you know might be a lawyer by training or might be a business person by training. Have you spoken to Chancellor Merkel about this and have those conversations been any different than the ones you've had with other world leaders? No, I didn't have the opportunity to speak to to the counselor about the COVID. No. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that would be that would be an interesting one if you did. So, where do we go from here? Uh, Bill Gates told me, and and Fauci as well, that they worried that sadly um, this may not be the last pandemic we'll see uh, this decade. That that we may see more. And in fact, uh, uh, Bill said to me, he said, Carlos, I almost feel like we should create a ready response team 
much like you have firefighters that are ready to respond to fires, even if they only occur intermittently. He said, I feel like we should have a back, um, a, uh, 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 a response team that's ready to respond to potential viruses or pandemics, um, because I think they are going to become more the norm, sadly, over the next decade. Is that how you see it? Do you expect that even once we get through COVID-19, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to minimize it because I know we're still in the midst of it, but even once we get through it, do you expect that there will be more pandemics down the road? I think it's a high likelihood that this will happen. It's, uh, or let's say it's a, it's a likely scenario. I don't know if it is extremely likely if it will happen in 10 years or in 20 or in 5 or in 100, but clearly pandemics and definitely and epidemics will be happening. There's no doubt. And uh, I agree that uh, we should be, uh, the next pandemic or epidemic should find the world much better prepared. And everybody should do its its thing. From uh, my perspective, for example, in Pfizer, I know that uh, we are seeing this also as a case study. So how can we prepare our operation? So if next time is a different thing that is coming, how we can learn from what we did well, how we can learn from what we were not ready to do and we could have been doing better if we were, so that we are ready and being able to to respond even faster or more effectively. And maybe we were lucky this time and the right technology worked on the right virus. It may need, we may need more time next time to be able to, to do something like that. So I want to make sure that uh, we have all uh, the resources in place so there will be no waste of time for things other than science fighting the new pandemic. And, and what does that mean for you? Does that mean a little bit like um, uh, Xerox in the old days with the uh, Xerox labs, that you'll create a dedicated group that's focused on that? Does that mean that you'll have more active scanning for um, these viruses? What does that mean for you to be better prepared for the next one? It is all the above. We are building m- many more labs. Uh, we are building even labs that we didn't have uh, and we had to go outside to do things. We are building manufacturing infrastructure. We believe that the mRNA technology could become a pivotal, um, could become the new thing in uh, in uh, in vaccination technology. So we are building a lot of infrastructure. Uh, so to make sure that it is there, if there is a need. So next time we will not start with 10 million this month, 30 million the next month, 50 million the month after, but we will start straight with 100 million doses the first month, 200 million doses a month. Um, So we are doing all of that. We are getting a lot of uh, scientists, uh, particularly with with, um, viral expertise, and not only in COVID, which obviously we did, but uh, we are trying to enhance our uh, operations with uh, influenza specialists, with, uh, with the type of virus that you expect that they can become uh, a, a pandemic, so that we were really, really well prepared. So infrastructure, laboratories, scientists, and the surveillance system. You, you know, it's interesting, as I hear you say it, it makes me wonder whether for a new generation of college students, this may become a new area that they may become interested in, um, whereas they may not have thought about this kind of work before. But I wonder if in an unexpected way, this may bring more talent into the field, or at least give you the opportunity to potentially encourage young minds to to come to this space and kind of join this fight. 
I'm sure, and I see it constantly, that uh, uh, I'm sure that this will happen, and I see it constantly that um, the the young generation, uh, they need something more than a salary in their career path. I mean, uh, when I was young, it was enough uh, for uh, a good salary and uh, a good career path to give your devotion to a company. Now, the young people need to feel that they are part of a greater good. They want to feel that they are uh, their work has impact on society. They want to feel that they are uh, uh, building something noble, that they are offering something to society. And uh, given the importance of uh, of the pandemic, that uh, overshadowed suddenly in 2020 other major issues, like, for example, environmental issues. Uh, so it's very clear that uh, now a lot of young people uh, are oriented towards uh, science that can also fight pandemics, uh, rather than as before. For example, it was a clear trend, science that can fight the environmental crisis. Right? So I think we will see that a lot coming uh, forward. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. 
Albert, I saw a very beautiful piece where you talked about uh, your heritage as uh, as a Greek Jew and and how that shaped you a little bit. Would you share a little bit with me about how uh, your faith and your heritage uh, and your parents kind of shaped you? Uh, uh, not to overread into that, but just to hear a little bit about that? Look, I mean, my parents were uh, uh, survivors from the Holocaust. So they were coming from a city of 50,000 and only 2,000 survived. They saw their relatives, their, uh, that, to, to make the math, this is 96% died. Ironically, like uh, the protection of COVID now, the reverse, right? And uh, so they saw themselves just because uh, they were who they were, uh, losing everything and everyone. Uh, that created the fear, but also because they were, uh, uh, both of them almost lost their lives, particularly my mother, uh, they learned how to appreciate life. So they spoke to me and my, and my sister about it, and, uh, and I was very lucky because a lot of Holocaust survivors never spoke about their horrors they endured. It was too painful. They didn't want to do it. Okay. My parents, I was lucky they did speak what happened to them. And uh, they never spoke uh, in the spirit of this is what they did to us. You need to take their events or you need to learn to hate those that they did to us. Never. It was irrelevant. For them, it was backstory. Try to remember so it will never happen. But what is the point here for them was that Celebration of life. Look, I was almost dead. They lined me up against the wall. And then uh, seconds before the execution, someone pulled me out and I survived. And I was that close to die. And now look, I have a family. I have you. I have you, my sister. And I have a life. And, uh, and life is beautiful. And so it was uh, a very optimistic view of... Uh, Things, bad things are happening. We need to turn the baits and move ahead. And um, I think that uh, gave me maybe the optimism that I have in life. Uh, I love that. And I appreciate, I know it wasn't easy for many people, but I appreciate the fact that your parents were able to share. And I hear what you're saying uh, in that. And there, there was something uh, uh, powerful and, and beautiful in that. Um, different topic. Talk to me, Albert, a little bit about what you saw um, as, as a citizen and as someone watching the Black Lives Matter protests last year. Um, were you surprised by it? Did you take anything away from it? How did you process that? Look, I, I was surprised with, the, with in the sense that uh, I'm not from this country, right? So I, I'm living here many years, okay? But uh, uh, there is a uniqueness in the way that racism is... Uh, is surfacing in this country, which is much more brutal than uh, in some other places. And it's much more systemic, uh, I would say. And uh, so always these things, to me, look very foreign, and uh, I'm uh, appalled to, to watch them. But what happened in 19, because it was not one or two, it was four in a row, right? That uh, uh, events that happened. Um, and that sparkled, let's say, this uh, anger from people, uh, you know, it was just uh, a, a, a reveal that um, although the world is moving ahead and uh, the United States are moving, uh, is moving ahead, okay, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done for uh, turning the pages, as I said before. Uh, 
and um, it, uh, it was a, a you know a very powerful feeling for me. One of the things I've been talking to folks on the show about, and I talked to to Bill and I talked to Dr. Fauci about as well, was the disparity uh, in health access and health care that you often see along racial lines. And that COVID sadly revealed that in many ways even more kind of made plain to us. How have you thought about those disparities? And maybe just as importantly, are there big ambitious solutions that you hope that we as a country will pursue over the next year, five years, decades to try and close that health gap between, uh, you know, in many cases, black Americans and white Americans? I know it's not that simple, but 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 how do you think about that? It's not that simple, but should become that simple. <laughs> we need to have a clear goal that we will close this gap because the gap exists and uh, we should measure against it. And there are multiple reasons, socioeconomic and uh, historical and uh, multiple other reasons, but uh, we need to have multiple solutions. There is clearly uh, a health inequity right now in, in the United States. When you see the numbers, they are as clear as the efficacy of our vaccine, right? They, they tell a story. That needs to be uh, resolved. Uh, from, from our perspective, just to give you how important it is for us in our culture as Pfizer. Uh, in, in 19, building on the successes of my predecessor, uh, we decided that we will pivot the company to a pure science company. Singular focus on science. We divested other businesses. We bought more scientific, let's say, basic science uh, a company so that we can really focus on that. And that uh, company of science and innovation required a different culture. So we decided that uh, we need to build the right culture for the, this company is this moment of time with this competition and these goals ahead. And uh, we decided to take four values that will uh, describe uh, the company. One of them is equity, one of the four. So we said the four things that will define Pfizer will be uh, courage. So we need to think big to be able to move for big goals like the, the COVID vaccine. The second was excellence. We need to learn how to execute, how to make sure that we do what we want to say, as we did with COVID. The third was equity, because we are a healthcare company. And if we don't have the equity in our DNA, we cannot be relevant to society. And then the fourth was around employees' joy. So I think it is, and we are taking significant steps in all fronts, how to make sure that our clinical trials, when you run them, they represent uh, the diversity of uh, the society that we want to, to serve. Uh, you saw an example in the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, we, had, uh, we, we said we must have a double-digit number of African-Americans in the 44,000, and we did. Uh, it was very important. It's way higher than what usually we have in clinical studies. Way higher. For, again, many historical reasons. But uh, uh, it's difficult to attract African-Americans. We did the right things and we were able to, to attract them. So we need to have clinical studies that uh, also are looking at their, let's say, um, that the participation is represent the society. We need to, need, we need to look at... Um, access programs that uh, will ensure that everyone uh, will have access to those medicines. These are very fundamental things in our core DNA. Albert, I want to turn a little bit. And I want to do something I call rapid fire with you, if you don't mind. And I'd love to 
hit you with a couple of quick questions and get your immediate reactions to them. Okay. Um, uh, Albert, what's your favorite book? It is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh, my goodness. You chose a Czech favorite. I love that. I, I, remember, I remember that so well. I, uh, I, I watched it as a film first in 1987. Um, I can still see where I was uh, before I read it as a book, but, uh, but a beautiful piece of work. Um, uh, uh, what is your karaoke song? I did it my way, not because I did it my way, but I love the, both the lyrics and the music. I, I absolutely love that. In fact, what you'll love is that my little sister and I sing that song as a duet. So we not only love that song, but we do that as a duet. It's a, it's a beautiful song. Um, um, uh, um, uh, tell us two young scientists that we should keep our eye on. Who are two young scientists that, that those of us who are everyday people should get to know and should keep our eye on? Look, I mean, um, I don't think that science moves anymore uh, the way that uh, it moved in the past. So there is a Pasteur that uh, will make a breakthrough and that will be the one who does it, uh, or will be Madame Curie, etc. I think science is much more diverse right now. So science will happen through collaboration of, uh, of hundreds and thousands of scientists. So I wouldn't say, look, uh, this one or, or that one. Clearly, though, within our, let's say, our uh, world, uh, there are some scientists that I believe they are uh, leading uh, the pack. I, I wouldn't like to, to, to give names right now because uh, I, I will not pay justice to those that I will not mention their names. But uh, there are some bright uh, minds, particularly the ones that I know inside Pfizer, but outside that they are working, that uh, are making a real difference. They are brilliant people. Best advice that you've ever given or received about dreaming fearlessly? What's the best advice you've either given or received about how to dream fearlessly and, and bring those dreams alive? You know, it's, the advice is think big. It's uh, who I am. Uh, usually when we were working, I remember in the animal health, and we were working about the market, uh, I, I kept saying to, to my people that, look, grow, growth never just happens. Growth is created. It's created with what you do in the marketplace. So, and, uh, so if there is no way that you will... Uh, be able to be successful and unless if you dare to do things differently. And no one ever made money by investing in savings accounts. That's my line. Yeah. I like that one. That's, that's a good line. Um, uh, most beautiful place you've ever been to in the world? That's so easy. Greece. <laughs> but where in Greece? The most beautiful parts of Greece, I think, are in the islands. And um, Santorini, for example. I can't compare, uh, I can't find easily this, uh, this beauty in other places. All right, in this moment where you can't fly to Greece for health reasons, if you had to sneak away somewhere in your area, where's a beautiful sneak away, hideaway kind of Airbnb treat near where you live? I, I didn't try to, uh, to usually I was going to Catskill when I wanted, uh, two, three hours away, uh, nature type of uh, scenery. Uh, 
right now, usually I go to, there is a town next to me called Greenwich, and they have a very nice beach. And then I go and I walk there. Finally, uh, for me, where will we see you in a decade? Where do you think we'll see you, Albert, a decade from now? That's the most difficult question you asked me. Uh, hopefully in a decade from now, uh, I will have uh, built a very strong Pfizer. I will have already someone who has uh, succeeded me. And I'm uh, watching him and or her, and I hope it's her. I'm very proud. I, uh, um, uh, Albert, I really uh, I thank you and I appreciate you for what you've done um, over the last little bit. I know at some level it's your job, but I also know how stressful I can only imagine uh, it was. And I'm grateful to you and the others. And I know many people were involved, but I appreciate my dad has gotten uh, the vaccine. Um, uh, I had to be convinced of it, though. You probably have seen some resistance among people and probably disproportionately among black and brown uh, patients. But um, thankfully, one of my colleagues, Liz, uh, persuaded me uh, to do it. And I'm uh, happy to say that my 86-year-old father has gotten both doses in as well. So I I thank you, and I'm grateful for that. First of all, thank you. I'm very happy that your dad did it because he's protected. I'm very happy that you did it, and uh, I did it myself. Uh, I didn't do it in the beginning. I did it. I was waiting to when my turn will come. It came, and now I'm about to do the second dose. And uh, I'm. Uh, I can't wait to to get my family to to do it. So it's it's a blessing. I tell you, when you when you get this uh, this uh, shot, it's a feeling of relief that you are getting. Um, Albert, do you know what Giannis Antetokounmpo? I not only I know him, but he's my my idol as an athlete, and uh, I flew uh, to go and see him play, and so I can uh, I can talk to him, and then I took pictures that I'm using very proudly with my friends. Actually, I have pictures with every president you can imagine. In Greece, one picture counts. If you have with the Yanis Atentokumbo. <laughs> I love it. And do you believe that he will win the championship this year or no? If not him, then who? <laughs> I love that I love that confidence. I hope you were right. Uh I hope you were right. I I, I thought last year, um, or even the year before, maybe. So maybe this is the year he seems more determined than ever before, which is good. Yep. Um, uh, Albert, thank you so very much, and I hope you'll stop by the show again. Thank you very much. That was great, great fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends to find us on the iHeart Podcast app or Apple Podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis, mm-hmm. back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-chorus, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. 
Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts